Conference of the United Nations on International Organization is now convened. Greetings. This is Dan Becker, and you are listening to Episode 2 of a three-part podcast series about the founding of the United Nations titled Act of Creation. The series features Stephen Schlesinger, author of the book of the same name, which will be celebrating its 20th anniversary this year, and is focused through the prism of what is famously known as the San Francisco Conference, where for two months, beginning on April 25, 1945, the UN Charter was hammered out and signed on June 26, 1945. Today's episode is called Managing the Impossible, and it dives into the conference itself and how it unfolded over two dramatic months. It also neatly encapsulates the overarching lesson of this episode. How on earth do you get so many separate nation states from around the world, all who hold their national self-interest close to their hearts, to ultimately act in unison on one simple but not simplistic fact that in the end, humanity is one? But let's not romanticize too much because it was not easy. In this episode, you'll hear everything from Sir Laurence Olivier quite dramatically reading excerpts from the preamble to the Charter to a discussion of one of the greatest heroes of this story that you've never heard of. If you missed episode one called Setting the Scene, you might give it a listen, as the historical context that surrounded the SF conference in 1945 is crucial. Briefly, we learned that World War II was still going on, that the bombing of Hiroshima was still a few months away, and very importantly, we learned of the tremendous power of an educated general public. But it seems the greatest lesson listeners took away from episode one was just how central President Franklin Delano Roosevelt was to creating the UN. This in spite of the surprising, ironic, and tragic fact that he died less than two weeks before the conference began. When listening to episode one, it becomes clear that the UN was first and foremost FDR's dream and that it was his essential leadership over many years that enabled the conference, and thus the UN itself, to exist at all. So the general thrust of, of Stephen's book takes place um, around what was called the United Nations Conference on International Organization, or the UNCIO, uh, most often known as the San Francisco Conference. And the book talks about just from April 25th to June 26th, this conference occurred in San Francisco on June 26, 1945. The charter was signed. Um, so the, the heft of the book is talking about uh, the tremendous amount of work, debates, arguments, potential collapse of the whole negotiation. And uh, uh, that's one of the things that makes things so exciting. And each of those issues have some background uh, and some history to them uh, that we'll be talking about and Stephen will be talking about. But uh, I wanted to sort of place the, the, the sort of heart of the context in those, those few months that uh, the United Nations Charter was, was hammered out. So one thing I would love to talk about for a little bit is the preamble to, to the Charter. The peoples of the United Nations. Yeah, the preamble was, you know, brilliant in the sense that it beautifully reflected the, what the sentiments are, were of the delegates who came to San Francisco. It op of course, the preamble opens as we the peoples of the United Nations. Um, although I will say that phrase itself engendered some controversy because after all, it was the states of the, of the world that were coming together, not the people. And some people, some delegates felt maybe should have opened the states 
of the United Nations. Anyway, the final conclusion was it was a more democratic viewpoint to have the word people rather than states. To save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime have brought untold sorrow to mankind, and to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights, in the dignity, the dignity of the human person. You know, I, I love that phrase, uh, equal rights for uh, uh, men and women, nations large and small. I'm not sure the small nations got quite the equal rights that, that, that it says. And to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. Um, there were at least four claimants on that particular phrase and, for that matter, the full breadth of the um, language in the charter uh, preamble. The first was the field marshal of South Africa, or the, the, in a sense, the foreign minister of South Africa, a man named John Smuts, who put together a draft which other people could fiddle with. Archibald MacLeish, who at that time was assistant secretary of state of the United States, regarded that draft as what he said was an abortion. It was, he said, it was so badly worded. And uh, he tried to fiddle with the language. Then Virginia Gildersleeve, who, who was dean of Barnard College, um, she was the only woman on the U.S. delegation. She'd been a former professor of literature. She also weighed in on uh, revising some of the language of, of the charter. And finally, a, a, a rather unknown congressman named Bloom from from New York State, he also wanted to have a preamble which would kind of pattern itself after the, the one that was used in, in, for the U.S. Constitution. For all of them took credit in one way or another for the language that finally resulted in what was the final preamble that we see today. Probably the person who most influenced some of the more literary uh, features of, of the preamble was uh, Virginia Gildersleeve, but all of the other ones that I mentioned had a role. Um, so one of my first questions is, my initial impression growing up was that the uh, the charter, the draft of the charter, because of course coming to the conference on, on April 25th, there had to be some general framework in place, it wasn't completely written then, uh, was a mutual affair between passing along documents and policy ideas between uh, uh, England and Russia and the Soviets. Um, and it sounds from what you're saying that the United States took the bulk of work on, on drafting the charter. Is that, is that true? The United States really was the key f player in, in drafting the UN Charter. The State Department took full control of the, of the early drafts of the UN Charter. It was a man named Pazvalsky, who was a Russian immigrant, oddly, oddly enough. Yeah, Leo Pazovsky was a uh, kind of junior figure in the U.S. State Department. He'd been brought in by then Secretary of State Cordell Hull as a um, strategist, in a sense. Um, and it was Hull who first assigned him, after Roosevelt had gone to the department and said, we got to start coming up with some ideas for a new U.N. charter, he, he, he put Pazvalsky, who, who was a brilliant man, to start working out the details of a, a UN charter. He had a whole team working with him, but uh, he, he also was very responsive to the political realities of the time. 
and drew on what Roosevelt himself wanted and, and um, Edward Satinius, who was then Secretary of State, what he desired. He, he managed to weave together a uh, series of uh, provisions for the UN Charter that kind of covered all the bases that they were concerned about. But Valsky was not able to fully engage Roosevelt's attention. It really was not until um, Sutinius himself got involved with the Charter and realized the immediate need for a final document that could be addressed by the nations of the world. This came to a kind of culmination in 1944 at a special conference which was held in Washington, D.C. at the Dunbarton Oaks Mansion, uh, whereby these five countries, uh, sorry, four countries that had been designated with, for the veto power, the United States, Soviet Union, Great Britain, and China, would have a first uh, exposure to, to, to the draft document and would finalize all the details. And then by the time uh, April 1945 rolled around and the and San Francisco meeting began, there was a document which had been agreed to by these four countries that could then be uh, debated in San Francisco by the rest of the uh, other 45 or 46 nations coming to the, to the meeting in that city. Um, Yes, so Pazvosky was actually critical in shaping the document. He then was uh, made sure that he did address, he, uh, Great Britain did have it, their own suggestions that were brought to Pazvosky's notice in those sessions in the State Department's deliberations, and he, he was able to make a few changes that Great Britain wanted. Russia really didn't take part in, in those early um, deliberations, nor did China. So it was basically a, a Pazvolsky document with a few additions from outsiders that uh, was, was the charter that was presented in San Francisco in 1945. So Pazvolsky was truly one of the heroes that came out of that conference. So now we're going to talk about some of the, the storm clouds that uh, were hanging over the conference. Now it's time to talk about the veto, the much maligned, hated, radioactive issue of the, of the veto. Um, and again, even my generation, and certainly my daughter's generation, she's 19 years old, um, the veto seems like nothing but a greedy power grab by the great powers, unnecessary, just done by sort of a, a, the need to sort of control and be the power, the policeman of the world for the, the smaller states. And I've learned that it's a much more slippery issue than that. So Stephen, can you first very briefly, just for, for listeners who might not really understand what the veto power is, because it's, it's almost a buzzword at this point, uh, what the veto power is in the Security Council, what the P5 is, and then we'll go into some of the controversies. In order to, co to construct a successful UN charter, uh, Roosevelt, who was then president, obviously, of the United States, realized that he had to address the power realities of the world in 1945 when the UN met at the San Francisco conference in, in, in April of 1945. Uh, why? Now the reason why is that the League of Nations, the predecessor to the, to the uh, UN, had been a dismal failure, failure because what it had done 
is give, given every country the veto power, which meant that a single country in, in the League could block any action, any necessary action by the League to block a conflict from spinning out of control and creating another world war. Uh, Roosevelt said, we cannot allow that to happen again. We've got to confine the veto power to the five countries, in his view, that are the leading powers of, of the world in 1945. And he calculated that those were China, the United States, uh, Soviet Union, Great Britain, and France. Now, why did he do that? Um, he realized that these countries were the only ones that could supply the manpower, the troops, the armaments, and the financial wherewithal to um, enforce missions that the UN uh, undertook, you know, to act as peacekeeping or to block an invasion or so on. The other countries around the globe just didn't have those uh, uh, capacities in, in, their, um, in their societies. So this was first of all recognition that you needed powerful countries to enforce the dictates of the United Nations. But secondarily, and maybe even more importantly, he realized he could not bring in the, the two leading powers at the end of the Second World War, the Soviet Union and the United States, without the veto power. Now, from the point of view of the, of the United States, he knew that the, so the U.S. Senate would reject the U.N. treaty if we didn't have the veto power. Why? Because he, the League of Nations had been rejected by the U.S. Senate just about 20 years earlier because they felt, the senators at that time felt the sovereignty of the United States was being invaded by this global body and that we, as a, as a sovereign country, were not protected uh, enough in, in, in the setup of the League of Nations. And, uh, but the Senate could not make that same argument in 1945 when the U.S. was only one of five countries that had this veto. And the veto, by the way, is a broad power, not only to block actions by the U.N., but to block countries from being admitted to the U.N., to block uh, resolutions by the General Assembly, to pretty much uh, dictate exactly how the organization would be operative in the future. Um, and on the Soviet side, uh, the Soviet Union made clear if they didn't get the veto, they would never join. And, and Roosevelt realized if you didn't have the Soviet Union in there, it would be a, a lifeless organization. You had to have all the major powers in, the, in this body in order to make it a uh, practical and operative organization. And so from that point of view, the veto became a kind of point of which Roosevelt was able, able to lock in the, the, these five countries who were, who were regarded as, as the most potent of all the countries on the face of the earth, locked them in to a, an agreement by which they all would participate fully in the organization and wouldn't threaten to leave it. And then, in doing that, he presented a kind of a fact of life to uh, the rest of the countries in San Francisco, the smaller nations, who said, hey, we want the veto, too. We want to be like the old League of Nations. The Netherlands delegation wishes to state its position briefly. The greater the power any state commands, the heavier its responsibility to wield its power with consideration for others.
and with restraint upon its own selfish impulses. We have been asked repeatedly to have confidence and faith in the permanent members of the Security Council. We hope and we trust that the future will justify our cause. We are therefore ready to accept certain limitations of that freedom of action which hitherto belonged to all sovereign states. But, sir, the question is how far this should be allowed to go. In our opinion, the right of veto of the permanent members of the Security Council has been given far too wide a scope. So I have, I have two follow-ups. One is, and this is simplifying what you've just said, but it seems clear that if the United States and the Soviets did not have the veto power of both, uh, they would have left, they would not have joined the United Nations. Um, so it's almost as simple as that. And if the Soviets and the United States, if either one of them didn't join the United Nations, it, it was essentially doomed to failure. Um, and, and many people forget that for the League of Nations, uh, you have to not only sign a charter, but you have to ratify it, and the United States never ratified it. So, so when I learned that it was actually like a matter of it existing or not to have the veto power, it wasn't something like the United Nations was solid, it was there and it was sort of added. It was really a matter of, of will this exist or not? And at those points, you have to make these terrible compromises that might pay off far down the road. Um, and uh, it, it just changes a little bit the way you, you look at it, because it's, it's it was a matter of, of just creating something essential and how far do you have to compromise to, to make that happen. One quick analogy, um, I have this, this sort of thought sometimes that sometimes to create uh, big things, there's always a time where some uh, a compromise has to be made that will pay off down, down the line. And, and one of my examples is when the American Declaration of Independence was being hammered out, um, there was a provision in there to end slavery. And uh, some of the southern states would not have voted for it if th that had stayed in there. So uh, Adams and other people had to make the decision. Do we insist on keeping this principled idea in the declaration and the southern states won't have it and there will not be a United States of America? Or do you make this terrible compromise that might have awful repercussions? And Adams even says sort of our children's children will pay with this with their lives um, to just make the, uh, the large uh, principal goal happen. So I sort of look at the veto a little bit like that now more than I had before. That It just it had to be there to have the United Nations exist and then uh, did a pretty good job of locking itself in and, and that's part of the frustration of it all. Is, is that fair at all to, to no, say? No, I think that's very fair. In fact, I might even add another compromise which came out of the uh, founding conference of, 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 of this country, which is that um, in in the uh, workout of, of of the U.S. Constitution, every state was all allotted two two senators, despite whatever the population was. So today we have a population in Wyoming, for example, of what nine hundred thousand people. They get two senators in California, which is what twenty or twenty five million people, also get two senators, and that's clearly in in imbalance. But without that to compromise, just the way slavery. Uh, was brought in as a part of a uh, workout uh, of the sort that we're talking about, uh, there wouldn't have been a U.S. Constitution. And that's a practical notion that sometimes people 
from differing viewpoints have to be brought together if you want to if you want to get to the ultimate goal. So another one of the storm clouds that loomed over the conference that had been developing for, for quite a while um, has to do with Poland. Can you talk a little bit about Poland? Yeah, Pol Poland from the beginning was a controversy that shadowed the entire conference in San Francisco. The background is that Poland was occupied by the Soviet Union by the time that the conference was beginning in San Francisco. And the Soviet Union had imposed a communist-led government in Poland when the conference took place. However, the democratic nations, particularly of Great Britain and the United States, had hosted in London a alternate government, of mainly of Polish Democrats committed to a full democracy. So the question was, which uh, of these two groups, the communist-led government in Warsaw or the exile democratic-minded government in London should be represented in the conference in San Francisco. I'd like to go back now to the Molotov press conference. Molotov, for example, was asked immediately, well, what about Poland? And for the first time, I heard a Russian foreign commissar use the word democratic in an affirmative sense. And the questions on Poland kept pouring in. Now, he said, I'll admit the solution is not easy. And particularly, it's not easy for us. Russia is Poland's neighbor. One impression that I got is that he does not believe that there ought to be any negotiations as between or with different factions of the Poles. So that put the Soviet Union and the United States at loggerheads from the very opening of, of the conference. And it was an issue that shadowed the entire uh, two months of the, of the meeting in April and May. In any case, the outcome of the UN was uh, a, a kind of close call. For example, um, the question of the acceptance of new nations their admissibility to the United Nations was in question for the country of Argentina. Argentina had been somewhat pro-Nazi during the war. Now, the condition for in, in, in inclusion in the UN at the San Francisco meeting is that the country had to be anti-Nazi before it could be admitted. But they were not going to allow countries that had not uh, officially turned against the Nazis in in. With, by a certain date, and Argentina had violated that condition. Nonetheless, Latin America, the entire Dela, all the countries from Latin America insisted that they would not stay in San Francisco unless Argentina was admitted. So this was a quandary for the U.S., which, of course, was very committed to making sure that the U.N. treaty was a success. In fact, so committed that they had allowed spying to go on. So the U.S. knew in advance pretty much the um, voting positions of almost every country that came to San Francisco. Uh, but they were so beleaguered by the notion that the League of Nations had gone, gone down to defeat, they were just adamant that, th that this, this one would be a success. The U.S. finally realized they couldn't, they couldn't afford to have Latin America walk out of this meeting. With all the world forecasting the complete capitulation of the European axis, 
The immediate question is the admission of Argentina to the parley. Ezequiel Padilla, Mexico's Secretary for Foreign Affairs, spoke for the South American Republic. Foreign Commissar Molotov argues against the inclusion of Argentina. His plea in Russian is interpreted to the delegates. The made by the Soviet delegation with regard to the question of Argentina is that this question, the discussion of this question, should be postponed for a few uh, days in order that we may be able to study. It's the only request made by the Soviet delegation. So they did a deal with the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union had insisted that two of its countries, Belarus and Ukraine, be admitted. But once they put those two countries up for our vote on admissibility, the rest of the UN refused to let them in because they felt they were part of the Soviet empire, not independent states. So the U.S. finally came up with a deal where they would assure the Soviets that those two countries, even though they're a part of, uh, of the empire, would be admitted as, as uh, sovereign nations in, in exchange for Argentina's admission. And that was one of the key settlements that was engineered by the U.S. that assured that there would be no breakup at San Francisco. Okay, Stephen, so in your book, you talk about several unsung heroes at the conference. Again, conference starting uh, April 25th, just for a couple months, ending June 26th, which was even later than they had, had hoped. One of the people that probably uh, no one knows about is Edward Statinius, the current Secretary of State. And uh, I'd like to know, like, how long was he in that position? Was he following all of the preparations for this? And, and why is he an unsung hero? What was he able to do to help the conference uh, pushed through the, the charter. Uh, Roosevelt had a, a man named Cordell Hall, who was Secretary of State for almost all his four administrations. Um, but in, in, early, in the early 1940s, Cordell Hall had resigned because of illness. And he replaced him with this, a man named Edward Satinius, who had been a, a former head of the U.S. Steel Company. He was a young man in his early 40s. Uh, this created a considerable amount of controversy among Roosevelt's followers because they were all very strong New Dealers, and they felt Satinius was from a rather conservative background. He, he may have even been a Republican. So anyway, Satinius becomes the new Secretary of State, yet he, he's a very attractive man, sort of like a movie star kind of good looks. And in, in many ways, these... Democrats who didn't like him anyway because of his background thought he was rather shallow, and partly because of a man that good-looking couldn't be very intelligent. Uh, for all those reasons, then, he had a mixed record when he went out to San Francisco as the head of the U.S. delegation. Um, and indeed, there was real question whether he could hold the mission together and successfully negotiate with all these big powers like the Soviet Union and China and so on that were coming to San Francisco for the big meeting. Well, it turns out that Statinius, in his low-key way, was able to conciliate the Latin Americans at one point as a body almost dropped out of the meeting because they felt one of their own countries was not going to be admitted, namely Argentina. And Statinius, in his own quiet way, and his own sort of backroom diplomacy was able to conciliate enough of these countries so that they remained in San Francisco 
and in, in the end uh, agreed that with some changes here and there, they could support the UN Charter. And he came out with a successful meeting, and, and, and that's how the UN Charter came into being. Yet he was never credited for what he did. And in fact, shortly after the meeting ended, Truman fired him because he wanted to have his own Secretary of State in, and he vanished from history. And uh, really, until my book came along, he didn't really get credit for what had happened. It's so interesting to me, reading your book, you, you do get this feeling of that he's handling these issues, these very dramatic and, and dangerous issues sometimes, with a particular style and personality that, that, that works. Some of it is sort of a lack of ego of a certain kind and an ability to be conciliatory, but I, I, I still have this sort of a, a mystery. Um, I think maybe there's a, more of an understanding of why he was the right man for the job. I, I just want to read a couple contemporaneous comments about Statinius at, at the time and, and understand why they're, they're so different than how we see it now, which th that it was such a great success. So, so even Truman said, Statinius, who knew little about global organizations and unlike his strong-minded predecessor, had even fewer opinions about them, deferred to the greater expertise of other people. And then just quickly, some of the other ones. There was Statinius, Secretary of State, a fine man, good-looking, amiable, cooperative, but never an idea in the world. Um, one person, no real leadership and no real ideas. Um, a decent man of considerable innocence. Um, just a messenger, grand person with every good intention and high honesty of purpose. Uh, he rarely contributed to our daily policy decisions. We improvise as we go along. So there's a little bit of reading between the lines of why it may have been successful, but I, I don't know if you can just enlighten a little more about why that, that regard for him by the people he was, he was uh, uh, bargaining with uh, may have ended up being a plus or what the disconnect was. Because when I read this section of the book, I was kind of having a bit of a, of a head spin. I think he was, I, I think from the beginning he was underestimated because, as I said, he had good looks, he'd been from a, uh, one of the great companies in America, a corporate head uh, at a very young age. He, 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 he was a good speaker. He, he was uh, uh, presentable in, in, the, in the Hollywood sense of the word. Um, and for all those reasons, he, people instantly either took a dislike to him or felt that he was overrated for, what he, for the job he was just given by Roosevelt. In fact, because he was underestimated, it, it, that may have actually accrued to his credit because it allowed him to talk in, in private ways and in public ways to the rather disputatious delegation, delegations that came from different countries in San Francisco without having an overweening ego in the way he dealt with them. And uh, that was what was needed in San Francisco. You, if the U.S. had simply sent somebody out there with, you stick by what I want, I demand that everything that the U.S. has said in the past should be uh, accepted now, and I, there won't be any, uh, we won't put up with any debate or, or, or a discussion. I mean, that would have been a disaster. But, by, but Stinius brought this openness. Somebody said the word innocence. Well, it was a kind of feeling that, well, we got to listen to these other people. We have to conciliate with them. We have to address their concerns. Otherwise, this is not going to be a productive outcome. And uh, I think he, you know, was able to raise to that level in a way that um, 
proved to be a great success. Yeah, I can't emphasize enough in reading the book how how it's so clear that, that this is almost an impossible endeavor. <laughs> I have the great honor to present to Mr. Estetinos in behalf of the steering committee the document. Lord Halifax, Dr. Belt, all I can say is that any success that I have had as the chairman of the steering committee or as a president of this conference is because of the support that has been given to me by the 50 delegations here represented. I thank you all from the bottom of my heart. Keep your ears and eyes out for episode three, where Stephen and I will take you and the charter across the finish line and describe the ratification process that followed. We'll share with you the outcome of the polling problem brought up in this episode, and then we'll step back a little, look at the enterprise as a whole, and see what appears when looking at the sum of its parts. Finally, we'll take a look at how the Charter, and more importantly, the United Nations adherence to it, has fared over the last 77 years. Act of Creation was produced and contains music by yours truly, Dan Becker, all in grateful collaboration with Pass Blue. Past Blue receives major support from the Carnegie Corporation of New York and the Open Society Foundations, as well as from smaller foundations, and most important, from thousands of readers across the globe. Thanks for listening. Music